to episode 159 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 3rd of January 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hi, hi. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. So here we are. Still can't believe it's 2022, a week later. Or is it a week later? Oh no, we lifted that curtain last time, didn't we? Anyway, so let's start with some discoveries, the relatively new segment. Graham, this one sounds really cool from what you've put in our doc. Oh, yeah. So this is a discovery I discovered and then carried on using, which is kind of rare, as good as lots of them are. But it's called Barrier. Now, years ago, when screens were expensive, you used to use a thing called a KVM to be able to share like two computers with one screen and you'd switch, flick a switch on the KVM and you wouldn't have to change anything. The same keyboard and mouse could be used and it would all work. But Barrier does the same thing with software basically across the network. So you run a barrier client on one machine and you run a barrier server on another. And then basically you can move from one computer to the next, usually with the mouse, hitting a border of the screen. So for example, if you have two two separate computers, two separate screens, and the client is to the right of the server, you can set it so that when you move the cursor to the right of the server screen, it goes onto the client. And then when it's going onto the client, it's actually going through the network, it's going over IP. So your keyboard and mouse is basically still plugged into the first machine, but there the keyboard input and the mouse input is being transferred over to the other machine, wherever it might happen to be, but it's usually right next to you. So for example, I have this Mac mini, I have my Linux box, I have them both plugged into an ultra wide monitor that you can split you can have the two inputs on at the same time. But I can't, I don't want to have two keyboards and mice. So Barrier works on macOS, it runs on Linux and Windows, and it's a really great way of, and it's faultless, and there's no delay either in the typing. I can't tell whether I'm on the client or the server because the input is so fast for both the mouse and the keyboard input. But it allows me to use both of those things at the same time. And the best thing is, that there's an Amiga version. <laughs> so it's an old piece of software called Synergy that used to be open source until something like version 1.9. And you can get a Synergy client for the Amiga. So I can have the Amiga plugged into another input or another. And with the Amiga in particular, you can't easily use USB keyboards or USB mice, especially not modern ones. So this allows me to use my USB keyboard and mouse with the same screen if I choose to plug it in and then operate my Amiga just like it would be um, with a native keyboard and mouse, which is a really good solution and it and it works. And it's got a beautiful UI. On macOS in particular, you have all these weird keyboard combinations that aren't that don't map directly to the Linux obviously control and alt and command and whatever else macOS has. The UI lets you translate keyboard presses from one to another with, with chords as well. And you can have up to like nine different computers spread around the central server machine. So in theory, you can spread it off to all kinds of machines that you might have plugged in from a single keyboard or mouse with no other hardware required just over the network. So presumably you're using this with a beefy Mac and a beefy Linux machine, but could you just use something really low power like a Pi? Yeah, I mean, if it runs on an Amiga and it runs quickly on the Amiga, then you don't notice any input lag or anything. I don't think it requires many CPU resources at all. I think it's implementing some kind of fake driver on the client and it's basically just grabbing the input on the server and then the fake drivers are the keyboard and mouse drivers on the client um, and it just pumps the data into that. Not to... Uh 
sort of be a party pooper, but how does it handle different resolutions? If you've got like this massive monitor resolution and then you jump into your, like, I don't know what Amiga has, is it 320 by 240? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> does, does it not like then scroll massively off the screen and you can't find your mouse cursor for about five years? So it's my fault in not communicating this. It doesn't do video. It just does the keyboard and the uh... mouse. Would your pointer not jump about? Because I've, I've gone from like a, a a different resolution monitor to a different resolution monitor and if my uh kd sessions kind of got messed up it, it means that my monitor my mouse comes out the wrong side or too high up on one screen because they're different resolutions no it really it makes a good guess at scaling um, and keeping the speed exactly right but there's also a configuration file you can go in and manually edit those values if you don't find them suitable and you can you can map the screen location to, you know, as if you were using multiple desktops and multiple monitors, you can say exactly where you want that other screen to be so that it does map directly to where you roll the mouse off, for example. Witchcraft. It's really good. And I don't know what they do, but a lot of their focus seems to be on keeping the latency and CPU usage low. So it really, you can't tell. And I'm somebody who can tell a little bit when there's a bit of delay in keyboard typing because I do a lot of typing and I really don't notice it but which machine I'm using despite the fact that the keyboard commands are going across the network and being reinterpreted on the other machine. So do I understand correctly that you switch the or rather you don't on your monitor you don't switch the input on your monitor because you can have two screens up yeah but you move the mouse as if you were moving the mouse onto the second screen and just type away and it's absolutely seamless and you don't sort of have this yeah switch between it's interesting i've got my windows box for gaming and i've got my um linux pc which i use linux laptop i use all the time and i run um vnc to connect back to the windows machine when i need to do stuff there and i run vnc in a full screen window but nevertheless it always feels a bit clunky um, I think this might be a good solution. So I just switch the input on my monitor and just carry on typing and it will just work. Yeah, and it's absolutely seamless. You could set it to be a keyboard shortcut as well. Rather than being triggered by the edge of the screen, you could still use the VNC session in a window and just press a keyboard shortcut and it will start sending it over to the barrier client oh. or whichever way around it is. You can do things like set tab to not switch the mouse over so that you can... Um, and caps lock, I mean. So you can press caps lock. The mouse won't go over, but the keyboard commands are now going on your Windows PC. Yeah, I can't see any issue with this at some point. When it lay at night, when you're like, oh, where the fuck is my mouse and my keyboard? Yeah. <laughs> Where's my password gone? Oh, IRC again. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I'll have to change all my accounts because I use the same one. All right, well, I've got a couple of discoveries, kind of three in a way. The first one is RD Find. Now, I have talked about this on Two and a Half Admins, or I learned about it on Two and a Half Admins before. RD Find can do a lot of things, but what I used it for is I've got this huge mess of backups on loads of different hard drives, or I did. And so I dumped them all onto my NAS into one directory. And then you can run RD Find on that and tell it to look through all your files and find duplicates and replace the duplicates with a hard link. A hard link as opposed to a sim link. With a sim link, if you delete the, I suppose, source file, then the sim link is useless. Whereas with hard link, you can have 10 hard links, let's say, to one file, let's say one image file, and you can delete any nine of them, and the 10th one will still work. And that's what RDFind does. So say you've got a 10 megabyte file, and you've got 10 copies of it in a directory. RDFind can go through 
and make it so that instead of 100 megabytes, you're only using 10 megabytes. But all those files are still there if you browse to the directory. It's genius. Don't use it on anything. Well, I use it on something that I shouldn't have, which was a big giant storage pool at 100 terabytes in it. And it ran out of memory pretty quick, unsurprisingly, and I should have known better. All right, because I've used this on my NAS, which only has four gigabytes of RAM. And granted, it was quite a small directory, maybe like two terabytes or whatever. And it slimmed it down to, I think, about one-ish, one and a bit. So my backups were that disorganized that I had just loads of copies of the same shit. Yeah, I think the problem I had was the fact that I had a lot of very small files and, and a lot of them to start with as well. So it really struggled after a while, which, you know, in reality is, yeah, of course it did. Well, this is a really weak Celeron, I think, a passively called Celeron in my NAS that uses no juice at all. And that took, well, I set it going and then checked on it a day later and it was done. So it took about a day, let's say, to do a couple of terabytes. So it's not exactly quick on a low-end machine, but, you know, it was just grinding away, no problem. However... I discovered that if you then rsync that directory with all the hard links to another file system, it doesn't respect those hard links and just copies all of that data so you end up with your full two terabytes again, unless you use the dash capital H flag with rsync. So I'd already run it once, and then I was wondering, why is this backup directory so much bigger? And then I realized, oh, rsync didn't respect the hard links because I didn't know about capital H. Or use the lowercase a, I think. And you get a few extra ones as along with it. All right. Okay. So yeah, RD find. If you've got terribly disorganized backups, that's my tip. Use that. And one that could have been either me or you, Graham. This is mad. This is a CPU implemented in VCV rack. Yeah, this is crazy. So we talked about VCV rack before, which is like a modular synthesizer that you can build out of software. And there's like hundreds of different modules that you can plug together, usually for making sounds and sequences of notes. But somebody's created a CPU out of these things designed for notes and sounds. It's a bit like the CPU that was made in Minecraft, isn't it? I was going to say exactly the same thing. Who has the time for this? <laughs> Who has the time? It looks a bit easier. There are lots of um, logic and gate arrays and things automatically in your Iraq for, for reasons of people wanting to do processing with notes and and logic and things like that. So there are, all, there are already those kind of frameworks that you can use geekily with sound. So I guess they already exist, whereas those Minecraft CPUs kind of recreate all of those and copy and paste them so they look like the size of a city. This doesn't look too complicated, but I just don't, even more so, I don't know why you would do it. <laughs> because you're bored, I suppose. But it's very, I mean, does it say it's Turing complete? I haven't seen that. <laughs> I'm sure it is, <laughs> or it could be. Well, I'm far too thick to understand this, but I'm just about intelligent enough to recognize that this is genius. Yeah, I wonder what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) A data CD in an old CD player. (laughs) On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $5 on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And for $10 on Patreon, you can occasionally get early access to episodes. And if you want to get in contact, show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux to get started with $100 free credit.
From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late-night-linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late-night-linux. Let's do some feedback then. And we've got a lot of people's predictions, so let's cover some of these. Shane says, my prediction is 2% plus on Steam before the end of 2022, and at least one major AAA studio releasing support for a multiplayer game on Linux. You're a dreamer, Shane. I still hope for the AAA game on Linux. That would be a real line in the sand. And, well, maybe I'm behind the times here maybe there's already one out there but um it would be nice to see a new one are you counting proton as a on linux or do you mean natively no i think proton well my view is that proton is the only way we're going to get a triple a yeah the native ship has sailed at this point to be honest i find proton to be really reliable for all the games that i've run on it and it's it's been really good so i take that okay cyborg zeta is delusional just just get this in beforehand. <laughs> uh, I am inclined to agree. My prediction is that XFC will officially start its transition to Wayland this year. Uh, yeah, I think we might be waiting a little bit longer. You never know. You never know. But uh, I'm not hopeful on that one. Uh, I'm not hopeful, but nor am I uh, disappointed. I'm quite happy with X11 and... <laughs> I that's what I like when, when you live in a tent it doesn't really matter how cold it gets as long as you're still alive at the end of the night fail him there's two of them what are we going to do I don't know there's no fucking hope have you changed your wallpaper to plain black yet Will oh good god God. And that was the second thing I did <laughs> excellent I don't like nice things me I want to be in misery it's like those <laughs> the monks in Monty Python battering themselves in the head with the plank I'm thinking more like it you and me are in Shaun of the Dead, failing, <laughs> and we're stuck in the park. Oh, do you know what? I'd take that. <laughs> well, whatever. Me and Will know what's what, and we're happy with X11 and all the old shit that is fine in XFCE for now. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jay says Ubuntu will replace GNOME, probably with Plasma or Mate. Nah, not a chance. I think... I say not a chance. I've set myself up for a massive embarrassment here, but throughout the GNOME to Unity 7 to Unity 8 to GNOME uh, cycle, there was always a very strong underpinning of GNOME technology, and that is the team's expertise and the team's background. If they replaced GNOME with KDE, that entire team would need to relearn all of those technologies, and that's not going to happen. They are experts in what they do, and they will continue to do that. Mate, I can understand as a more easy transition, but I still, despite 
liking Marte a lot, I still don't think it would happen. Well, I, I put this in my prediction as well, but I don't think it'll be Plasma Armada. I think it's going to be something else. And XOC. Well, no, I didn't realise that a bunch of podcast folk had said uh, Flutter Desktop, and I, that is actually quite a good point. I think could very well happen. Yeah. Graham, give us the inside knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the Ubuntu guys are saying that, the Ubuntu podcast guys are saying that, that sounds like a good bet. Oh, that so sounds like he knows something. Uh-huh, right, <laughs> quick, write that one down. Well, Canonical is clearly invested in Flutter. They're writing the installer in that, and it looks like any other desktop application that they make going forward is going to be Flutter. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility, but no, I, I don't see it. Like I predicted, there will be new desktops appearing this year. There's already been one that's convergent. I can't remember the name of it now, but KD. Yeah, that yeah, that's the new desktop. Yeah. But they uh the, the Ubuntu won't. They won't change it. They'll stick with GNOME for now. We'll see. Jay also says Microsoft will increase its influence on Linux. Probably they will buy SUSE or something. Toddy said increase. <laughs> oh <laughs> shots fired. Uh, all right, Manjaro Linux will change its repo policy to make it similar to Arch. I mean, they'll stop making new packages wait for a week. Isn't that Manjaro's like whole thing, though? You're our Arch correspondent, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It is the whole thing, so I don't know why that would come true. Yeah. Jay also says the Steam Deck will not succeed as expected. Sorry, I wish it would. What does succeed as expected mean? It's, they've sold every single one they possibly can. Isn't that a success? Time will tell on that. I, how many people stick windows on it, for example, will be the, the real test. I think Jay's right here. I think that the Steam Deck will be a big fish in a small pond and those um, ripples will not spread beyond the initial excitement around it and it will just disappear. Yeah, I think I agree with Joe. I think... It- to a large extent, it's already been a success in making Linux relevant, at least in conversations and people talking about it and people looking at it for games and Proton. And that's already so much more than it we already had in terms of attention. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty and Valve has a history of backing things that then kind of it cools on and that may happen. But uh, yes, it depends on what we expect. I don't think it'll be a full incredible Linux wins the day and everything's running on Linux. I don't think it's going to be that. But I, I think I think Steam Deck is a success and I think it will continue to grow, probably more modestly than all the hype, but it will still continue to grow. The only way the Steam Deck cannot be a success is if they don't ship them and have to refund people, which is not beyond the realms of possibility, but it's very unlikely. Yeah, I'm very confident that they will ship and the people will be very happy with them. I just don't think that there'll be enough of them to make a difference. Okay, Jesco says, my prediction, hope, is that Mozilla is going to add a Tor privacy tab to Firefox, similar to what Brave does. This sounds like a good idea. Does it, though? I mean, (laughs) what was that thing about, we only had recently enough where about, what, a third of all the nodes were added by some dubious third party? Like, I don't know, is Tor still safe? If Mozilla had their own VPN service, maybe they could integrate that into a tab. <laughs> I've not heard anything about that. No. Tell me more. Could you maybe pop it in a browser tab nearby? <laughs> I think it depends what you want to achieve by using Tor. I think it is still useful in some circumstances, but if you think that you are totally anonymous and totally safe to do 
all sorts of nefarious shit, then good luck. I do wish, and we've touched on this before, that Mozilla would make what are effectively editorial decisions on things like this on tour and look into it and, and say, this is what you get. This is what you might have to contend with. This is why it might not be secure and, and do things similar to this, but only with the backing of their kind of impartiality and resources. Yeah, it'd be nice. Somebody with expertise actually looking into a, a feature that could benefit more than yeah. All right. Chris says GIMP 3.0 will finally be released. Krita, it's at five. It's better <laughs> by two. Yeah, it must be. I've, I don't follow the development of GIMP enough to know or care, really. It does everything I need and about a thousand percent more. So I can't see what they could possibly add that would help me out anymore. So uh, maybe you're right, Chris. BcacheFS will be merged into the Linux kernel. Haven't people been predicting this for about five years at this point? I can't see it. Pipewire will become the standard audio server on Linux, replacing Pulse Audio. Fedora are already shipping Pipewire by default. I expect other distributions to follow suit in 2022 and for Pipewire to become the norm. So people who care about audio, i.e. U2, does it matter? Do we care? I think that it's not going to be in Ubuntu 2204 LTS, but it will probably be in 2210. What do you think, Graham? Yeah, I think Pipewire is the way forward. It's a better stack. But I've been running it for a while, and I'm a little bit disappointed by its lack of progress. I still have to switch to Pulse Audio for quite a lot of things or run Pipewire on top of Pulse Audio. Sorry? That sounds really reliable. Yeah, on top of Jack, on top of Elsa. On top of OSS driver. What was that the other one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. On top of slash dev slash DSP. <laughs> so I'm a, I, I don't think it's a Wayland thing, but... It's going slower than I hoped when I first saw and installed the packages and read about it. Um, so I'm not hopeful for 2022, but I think the technology is sound. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely the future. And as an Ubuntu user or as Ubuntu user, I'm very grateful that it's in Fedora by default, being tested by technical people and being improved. <laughs> Taking one for the team. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And I'm glad that this time Canonical have not rushed ahead like they did with Pulse Audio. It was adopted in Ubuntu before it was ready, is the bottom line. Pulse is fine now. All the shit that it gets, it works fucking perfectly as far as I'm concerned. And so why upend it with Pipewire? Well, there are a lot of advantages to Pipewire. But this is what Fedora's for. Fedora is the proven ground for new technology. And great. I'm really glad it exists. And I'm really glad that I don't have to be the person <laughs> who tests stuff. So thank you very much. Chris also says it will be interesting to see what DuckDuckGo's new browser is like and whether it can gain much adoption and develop a niche for itself. It will not. Yeah. <laughs> it may develop a small niche for itself. We'll have to see how that works out. Okay, Stalin Vlad says the ARM laptop will be the Raspberry Pi 5, but it will have an e ink monochrome screen possibly as big as 10 inches. Modular, easy to repair. <laughs> oh, come on, grow up. <laughs> Modular, easy to repair and meant for schools. Old men with too much money will buy nearly all of the initial run, <laughs> just as an IPO of Raspberry Pi. The OS will have a locked app store, in short, a Chromebook killer. And related, Ben said, I predict that there will be a RISC-V board with performance on par with a Raspberry Pi or a Pine board. This is pretty bold, 
but it would be really cool because everything about such a system would be open, an open hardware platform running open software. What would really be cool would be if one of those companies makes a board like that. Now, Ben, you are misinformed about RISC-V. Just because the instruction set is open does not mean that you are guaranteed to get open hardware with anything that uses it. Because it is permissively licensed and you can add whatever you want to it and almost certainly will need to add other proprietary shit to it in order to make a functioning system. The heart of it will be open, but it will not be necessarily 100% open hardware. So sorry to burst that bubble. It would still be cool, but let's temper our expectations, I think. On the ARM laptop, the Raspberry Pi 5, I think, is a nice idea. A reimagining of the Acorn A4, which was a black and white uh, ARM-powered laptop from about 1995, would be very nice. I think the e-ink screen is probably not practical, but I can imagine a Raspberry Pi laptop or rather a Raspberry Pi with um, A400 with a screen built in, I can imagine that coming out. That would be a nice device. I mean, do they not sell kits like this on the Pi Hut or whatever the websites are where you can essentially get a screen with a keyboard and then strap in Mm. a Pi to it? Thinking about the uh, framework laptop, it'd be interesting if the Raspberry Pi Foundation put some, you know, create. I mean, the Raspberry Pi is modular, but actually made some kind of modular case, a laptop case, so you could have a 10-inch um, e-ink monochrome screen if you wanted to, or whatever you wanted. Like a colour one that actually you could use? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't get this e-ink screen obsession. It's great for reading books, but apart from that, it's not very good for day-to-day computing, is it? No, not in a laptop. I could see it if you, you know, wanted some kind of home assistant data view, maybe, and you'd be powering it off a battery. Yeah, ink definitely has its place, but as a main computing device, I just don't see it. The rest of it doesn't make much sense. I don't think there'll be a, a locked OS store, and I don't think it'd be a Chromebook killer. No, I can't see it. Well, speaking of Chromebooks, Jim of Two and a Half Admins made a point that ARM Chromebooks are the netbooks that Will was talking about. And there was a big, long Twitter thread about this. Yeah, too long, didn't read. Uh, Sorry, Jim. But (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure back when I made this uh, prediction two years ago, I specifically said that Chromebooks don't count, and I stand by that. I want a real, well, I want Ubuntu is what I want. Yeah. It's Ubuntu, come on. Well, I'll take Ubuntu, then I can reinstall. Okay, Joshua recommended Calyx OS, which is a custom ROM for Pixel phones and a couple of others, but I don't have any of those phones, so uh, it's not much use to me, but it might be useful to other people who are looking to uh, run a de-Googled Android phone. And he also recommended a site to check which apps will work with de-Googled Android. And he said that he tried various ROMs and MicroG and that he's getting on quite well without Google, so you're not alone, Phelan. <sighs> We should grow. (laughs) But yeah, I'll put a link to those in the show notes anyway. So Corey writes in and he says, Excellent dive into Garuda. I kind of wish you'd mentioned their Zen kernel tweaked for gaming. I've never had such a good out-of-the-box everything experience with Linux. I dev and stream and now game on Linux and Garuda has made my dual boot almost moot. But it's been on my machines as my daily driver for far longer than previous distros has in the last two years. So I feel it's going to overtake Manjaro at the very least and maybe Endeavor as well as the dominant Arch distro on the market. Also bonus that they send push notifications 
from their forums about security updates and also advisories for not bumping certain packages due to conflicts straight to the desktop. It's those little extra touches that push it over the top for me. I didn't know about that kernel thing, so that's uh, very interesting. Thanks, Corey. But it does feel like some people have taken Arch and polished it to be something that isn't quite what I want, but you can see a lot of time, attention, and love has gone into it. And it does seem to be winning that mindshare for people who want to use Arch but can't be asked to do it properly like you do, Graham. Have I mentioned that? (laughs) (laughs) No, we'll just mention it for you from now on. Let's get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what we'll be talking about. It'll probably be uh, some dystopian future or something. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.